This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our summer edition of our Q&A with DHA. Hope that everybody's having a fantastic morning so far as we move into our gorgeous afternoon of sun. Today is our Q&A session, and as per our previous Q&As, what we're doing today is we're answering questions that were submitted to us in advance of today's session. As a quick reminder, we don't answer questions live. We ask it all questions be submitted in advance to make sure that we can prepare a fulsome answer to those questions as best as possible. Uh, and of course, what we try and do is we try and limit our time here today to between 30 and 45 minutes. So you can have about 15 minutes or so to go out and enjoy that gorgeous sun, get a nice walk in before you're digging back into your afternoon of work. We may run a little bit over depending on how long our questions are today, but we'll do our best to keep within a 30 to 45 minute time frame this afternoon. So we're going to go ahead and get ourselves started. We've got lots of fun topics that we receive from our attendees here today. We're going to start off with the first one, which is everything about rentals, or I guess some things about rentals. Uh, rentals are hot topics in condos. In fact, in uh, in September, on September 22nd, I'm going to do a plug here, Melinda, before I turn it over to you. On September 22nd, CCI Eastern Ontario is putting on a fall conference, and we just might have an exciting session all about tenants in condos. So mark your date, September 22nd. You're not going to want to miss that. And in the meantime, we're going to hear from Melinda on some of the key hot topics right now. Melinda, over to you. Great. Thanks, Nancy. So the first question that I got was, can a condo limit the number of rentals in on the property, for example, by amending the declaration bylaws or rules? So generally speaking, the answer is no here. And there's a couple of reasons. First off, we can't do an outright prohibition against rentals because it violates certain requirements at law that allow property owners to use their properties in certain ways. But then secondly, and more relevant to condominiums, we don't have a real way in a condominium context to limit the number of rentals because it violates the requirements to treat all owners equitably. So for example, if you put a limit on the number of rentals, some owners would be allowed to rent their unit, but then once you reach the quota, the other owners wouldn't get that same benefit. And so it creates an unfairness there that's not generally permitted at law in a condominium. Um, otherwise, though, I think this question comes up because of concerns that are being raised by condominium insurers. We, uh, because we've obviously heard comments like this coming from other clients about what their insurers are saying. So it's not entirely clear what the issue is because we're getting mixed messages across the board from insurers. Some are saying things like, high numbers of rentals on a property are going to increase insurance premiums. Others are saying things like, you need to limit the number of student rentals on your property. But the difficulty with those types of comments is, for example, we can't prohibit a certain type of people like students from renting on a condominium property. But what we have found as a solution is to pass a rule that defines how units are occupied. So you may not be able to deal with this in terms of limiting rentals, but there's there's another way that we found and it's passing a rule that defines how units are occupied. And so the way it works is that most condominiums in Ottawa and Eastern Ontario have been developed as private single family residences. So that would be stated in the condo's declaration. And we know that the courts have interpreted that definition of a single family residence very narrowly. It basically means a family unit. It basically means, sorry, that the units can only be occupied by parents and their children and any other relatives that are living with the primary uh, group in the unit. So what we can do, though, is pass a rule respecting the use and occupancy of units to expand that definition. And so we would include different configurations, for example, two siblings living together in the unit or two um, co-owners that own the unit jointly living together in the unit. But the point is that passing a rule like this with respect to the use and occupancy of units um, expands the configurations that can occupy the unit while also complying with that single family rule requirement. And it also makes it clear 
that rooming house type arrangements with multiple unrelated people in the unit are not going to be permitted. Because again, the courts have confirmed that if the condominium has been developed as a private single family residence, it's not possible to have these large groups of unrelated people in each unit. So the result is that generally we're finding insurers Regardless of whatever the how they've described the concern, they are accepting these rules as a valid way to sort of address the concerns that they've raised um, with respect to rental units or students, high numbers of students on the property. So I'll leave it at that um, on my first question. The second question I have is, does the City of Ottawa's property standards bylaw apply to condominiums? And the short answer here is that yes, there's two property standard bylaws. One relates to property standards, the other relates to property maintenance, but both of them apply um, to residential properties and they would apply to condominiums. So the property maintenance bylaw deals mainly with things like proper snow and ice removal and garbage disposal. And then the property standard bylaw has a bit more um, content in it. And it talks about things like keeping the property in good repair and maintenance, keeping um, all plumbing and cooking and refrigerating appliances in clean and sanitary conditions, and keeping yards and fences well maintained. So it's really all things that our condos are generally already on top of. But you may encounter problems like this, problems re related to the city's property standards with individual units. So it may not be a, a condo-wide problem, but it may be an individual unit problem, in which case, number one, the city may become involved and go after that particular owner, or the condo would also have a, a general um independent right to seek compliance in the circumstance against that particular unit as well. So an example that I've encountered with this, I had a townhouse unit they let the, where they let the power get cut off and they had no fridge or freezer in the unit, um, which was really a problem, particularly in the summer months. And so what they ended up doing is plugging the fridge into, I believe it was a gas powered generator, which I can't remember if the generator was inside or outside the unit, but it resulted in this patchwork of like extension cords running to all sorts of appliances and really just an unsafe condition altogether. And so the condominium sought to enforce certain provisions available under the Condominium Act and in the condominium's rules that prohibit these unsafe type conditions. And those provisions that we were enforcing essentially mirror some of the requirements and the general principles in the city's property standard bylaws. So as I was preparing this um, for our session today, the question though came to my mind, whether the condo can specifically enforce the city's property standard bylaws against a particular unit. And the answer here is that some condos may have a rule that imports the city's bylaws as part of their rules that would then apply on the condo property. An example here is that we had a unit recently where over the winter, the owner was not picking up after their dog um, in the yard. And then basically come springtime, it resulted in a really unsanitary condition on in the yard where none of the dog feces had been picked up. And so because this particular condo had a rule that imported the city's bylaws and basically confirmed that they apply like rules on the condominium property, we were able to enforce the city's bylaw that says pet owners need to pick up after their pets immediately and on a regular basis against this particular owner in their uh, in the yard, even though we didn't have a specific rule um, outright stating that. So you can pass a rule to import the city's bylaws and have them clearly apply um, on the property so that the condo can enforce them. Otherwise, though, without a rule doing that, I don't know that a condo could necessarily enforce the city's um, property standards bylaws directly, but you could certainly point to them as an applicable standard and then take action under any available provision under the Condominium Act or, or any other rule that you can use to enforce. The last point I want to mention, though, on um, the property standards bylaws is that even though a condominium may not be able to specifically enforce them against a unit owner, condos and boards and owners need to be aware that 
we still have to comply with them. So I mentioned this because um, one of the big um, issues that we see, particularly in townhouse units, is requests for, for owners to turn their basements into bedrooms where a, base, a bedroom didn't originally exist. Um, and typically, if the units weren't developed with basements, basement bedrooms, it can be difficult to really approve that type of uh, modification because most of the time, the basements don't comply with the city's requirement under the property standards bylaw to have a secondary means of egress. So a window or, or a door for the person to get out in case of emergency. So I just mentioned that because even if you can't enforce the, the standards on condominium property, we still have to be mindful of what the property standard bylaws tell us in terms of major structural changes or how we're changing the composition of how units can be used. So I'll leave it at that, Nancy, and, and pass it back over to you. Fantastic. Thank you, Melinda. And there's so many issues that come up in the springtime in particular, uh, particularly when condominium corporations are doing their annual inspections. And then when everybody is outside enjoying the gorgeous weather, these types of communal situations tend to highlight. So thank you, Melinda. That was fantastic. All right. And folks, what I've done is I've also, I'm just going to hit enter here. I've put the CCI East Ontario Fall Conference link in there into the chat. So in case you want to go ahead and take a look, uh, some of the items we'll be talking about today are also going to be discussed in different context in the fall seminar. And in fact, Cheryl's discussion is one of those items. Uh, human rights considerations, human rights, the cat, jurisdictional issues, they're always very, very hot topics. So again, it's going to be talked about the fall conference program. But for now, Cheryl, you're going to address a specific question that we received. So go ahead and over to you. Yes, thanks, Nancy. So I do have one question that I am looking at today. And the question relates to human rights. So it was, will the Condominium Authority Tribunal hear a case that has been mediated and settled by the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal? Specifically, if the corporation remains unhappy with the human rights settlement, will the condo tribunal hear the case? So we're not able to provide a specific answer to this question without doing a fact-specific review. But for today's purposes, I thought I would go over what we do look at just to give an idea of the considerations that we go through when looking at a question like this. Um, so as I mentioned, there are different uh, considerations with respect to proper jurisdiction of a dispute, especially when there is a previous proceeding. Some of the things we look at are, was there a breach of the settlement agreement? Why is the corporation unsatisfied with the agreement reached? And are there additional new compliance issues that have arisen? So if there was a breach of the settlement, we would review and provide specific comments on whether it makes sense to return to the Human Rights Tribunal to enforce the settlement. Each court or tribunal has separate procedures for enforcement that would need to be looked at. If the corporation is unsatisfied with the settlement, we would need to consider why the corporation is unsatisfied to determine what steps, if any, can be taken. It's important to note that once a settlement is reached, it can't be relitigated in a different forum. Parties need to be careful when considering a settlement, whether to ensure that it can live with the settlement entered into. Um, if there are unintended consequences of the settlement, we would need to discuss that with the condominium corporation to see whether separate issues are raised and that could maybe move um, the matter to the condominium authority tribunal or whether the settlement agreement could be clarified. Lastly, if there are new issues that have arisen, it would depend on the issues to determine whether the fresh dispute could go to would go to the human rights tribunal or whether it would go to the condominium authority tribunal. So when we're speaking about jurisdiction um, with human rights issues, we know that condominium corporations must comply with occupancy of accommodation under the Ontario Human Rights Code. However, this does not mean that every matter related to human rights must go to the Human Rights Tribunal. So the Human Rights Tribunal in a 2010 decision confirmed that when considering a request for a deferral of a human rights application, 
by, uh, in that case, by a condominium corporation, that the human rights tribunals are not the only decision makers that can decide these types of claims. In that case, the condominium corporation commenced a proceeding through the um, mediation and arbitration procedures under Section 132 of the Condominium Act um, and the dispute related to um, the boundaries of a parking unit. After the corporation had started that proceeding, the owner then brought a human rights application alleging that since it was a, it was a human rights matter, she needed additional room around her parking space for her walker and said that the matter should be heard at the human rights tribunal because it related to a human rights matter. And so when looking at this question on whether the matter should proceed by way of um, the HRTO application or the um, mediation and arbitration proceeding that was started by the condo, the HRTO confirmed that where parties are already engaged in a concurrent legal proceeding where they're raising the same human rights issues before a decision-making body that has the authority to make determinations in those issues, the orderly administration of justice favors deferral to the other proceedings. So in essence, the human rights tribunal would not hear the application brought by the owner because the matter was already before a uh, adjudication or in an adjudication proceeding um, that had the authority to make a determination in the matter. In 2020, when the Condominium Authority Tribunal jurisdiction um, expanded and it was starting to hear uh, matters relating to pets and parking, there was a question on whether the cat would hear human rights matters in that context or whether those matters would need to proceed under the human rights tribunal. Um, in 2021, a decision of the Condominium Authority Tribunal did clarify this matter. So in that case, a condominium corporation um, took the position that the um, subject matter related solely to human rights um, you didn't need to look to the corporation's governing documents to determine the issue. And so because it was a human rights matter, it should be dealt with at the human rights tribunal. The uh, condominium authority tribunal disagreed with the condominium corporation and confirmed that because the request for an accommodation was being made in the context of the pet rule and the, uh, the service animal policy that the corporation had in place, the matter was properly within the jurisdiction of the cat. So long story short, there are definitely situations where human rights matters can be raised and determined in the uh, condominium authority tribunal. This is specifically the case where there are multiple concerns related to um, enforcement or compliance matters with the corporation's governing documents and having the matter heard at the condominium authority tribunal would avoid multiple proceedings. Um, so the Human Rights Tribunal, courts, mediation and arbitration proceedings, and Condominium Authority Tribunal can have overlapping jurisdiction. And if there is a question on whether that someone's in the correct forum or whether something should be deferred, the adjudicators will often look at what makes sense in the orderly administration of justice and whether we can avoid multiple proceedings by hearing it in one forum versus the other. Turning back to the initial question on whether we can move to the Condominium Authority Tribunal after a settlement has been reached, uh, careful consideration should be given to the specific facts of the case to determine whether that settlement could impact the current dispute and to determine what the correct form is um, in light of the considerations I mentioned above, um, so to see where those concerns should be addressed. So that's all from me, Nance. All right, fantastic, Cheryl. And I think it really does highlight that in every given situation, it's really very fact-specific and you won't necessarily know right off the bat which forum you're supposed to be in. So a careful consideration is necessary. All right, Cheryl, thank you so much. We're going to move right along to our next topic. We're going to invite Nicole to go ahead and join us on screen here. And this is another hot topic, access to units, section 19 of the act, access rights, et cetera. We get a lot of questions about this. So Nicole, I'm gonna turn it over to you. 
Thanks so much, Nancy. As Nancy mentioned, I'll be discussing Section 19 of the Condominium Act. Specifically, the question that we received was, what is considered reasonable notice under Section 19 of the Condominium Act? The short answer is, it depends. The circumstances really dictate what will be considered reasonable. And I'll try to explain exactly what I mean by that. But let me begin by explaining a bit about this section. Section 19 of the Act specifically authorizes the representatives of a condominium corporation to enter an owner's unit or exclusive use common element area upon giving reasonable notice to perform objects and duties of the corporation. I'm going to read the section so you know exactly what it says. On giving reasonable notice, the corporation or a person authorized by the corporation may enter a unit or part of the common elements of which an owner has ex exclusive use at any reasonable time to perform the objects and duties of the corporation or to exercise the powers of the corporation. So in other words, if access to a unit is necessary to carry out the duties of the corporation, then the corporation has the right to have a representative enter for that purpose with reasonable notice. Reasonable is a term used in many contexts in the legal world that indicates that there's some room for discretion. It's not defined in the act, but looking at the definition of reasonable in other contexts, it includes as much as is appropriate or fair. As our brilliant colleague Jim Davidson has said, reasonable is what a given judge on a given day says is reasonable. So in other words, it's a moving target. And all this to say, again, what constitutes reasonable notice for the purpose of Section 19 will depend on the circumstances, especially why access is required. This means you may need to exercise good judgment to determine how much advance notice is reasonable. To be clear, I'm not talking about emergency access. In an emergency like water damage or other circumstance that presents imminent risk of harm to persons or property, it's reasonable to provide no prior notice. However, in my view, it's still important to provide notice to the owner in that case, in the case of an emergency, but then notice would be required after the entry is exercised. I should caution here that the province has proposed an amendment to Section 19 in relation to access without notice in emergency situations. If that amendment ever comes into force, condominium corporations would need provisions in their declarations or bylaws to authorize emergency access without notice. However, most condominium corporations already have provisions of that nature in their declaration or bylaws. Anyway, the, for the purpose of today's discussion, I'm referring to more general access required by the condominium corporation in cases other than emergencies. So let's look at why access might be required, because again, it will be relevant to how much notice is reasonable. A condominium corporation may require access to a unit or exclusive use common elements for many reasons, the most common being uh, to carry out repairs or maintenance or to carry out an inspection. So how do you know what's reasonable in those circumstances? A good place to begin is to look at the condominium corporation's declaration bylaws, and rules. Sometimes these might specify a required notice period. Um, and if they do contain a provision of that nature, it provides helpful guidance in providing notice. So start there. And if the governing documents require a specific notice period, make sure you're scheduling attendance in accordance with those provisions. However, where there is no immediate risk and there is no guidance in the governing documents, What's reasonable? Going back to the definition of reasonable, I would recommend exercising your judgment to give as much notice as is appropriate or fair. In some circumstances, it's appropriate to give as much notice as possible. If access for scheduled repairs or maintenance is required, book the date far enough out that gives you time to get, provide notice to the unit. I'm talking about situations that are prearranged, like access for required schedule a scheduled project. In that case, you're in a position, position to provide notice in the vicinity of weeks. So if you can provide that much notice, do it. Where it's more of an unexpected situation, such as an inspection being required because of concerns relating to the state of the unit, weeks would usually not be necessary. 
but you might still be in a position to give 48 hours notice, again, depending on the specific circumstances. I summarize as follows. In cases where there's no urgency, plenty of time, we like the idea of providing at least two weeks notice. In more urgent cases, where a delay could create real concerns, we like the idea of providing at least 48 hours notice. But again, it very much depends on the specific circumstances. If you're in doubt, I recommend consulting legal counsel. And on the subject of access to units, it's also worth noting that the condominium corporation should consider having copies of keys to all units. Courts have confirmed that condominium corporations are entitled to have keys to all the units in order to fulfill the corporation's objects and duties, even if the condominium corporation's governing documents do not include mention of this. This is particularly important for emergency circumstances. In the case of an emergency, if the corporation cannot access the unit and doesn't have a key, it might require damaging the door, for example, in order to enter the unit. This could add time required to access the unit, which can be critical in an emergency situation, and it also adds unnecessary damage and related costs. So again, in many cases, it may make sense for the corporation to have keys to all of the units. And of course, you must take steps to obtain keys if it's required by the declaration, bylaws, or rules. And one last note on this topic, if you do collect keys, it's important to have a good system in place to keep the keys safe. You would, of course, keep keys in locked storage and perhaps with access um, being required by two persons instead of just one representative of the corporation. If you decide to have that sort of system in place, owners can, owners can know that keys won't be accessed by representatives by themselves, but rather together, which adds a sort of additional security measure. And those are my comments for today, Nancy. Thank you. Fantastical. Thank you so much. And I know that definitely is a concern sometimes if uh, if owners are giving out their keys, how do we make sure that those are secured? So you can also contact a security expert to see if they have any additional comments on how best to secure keys on site uh, when corporations are uh, taking uh, control of keys of units. All right, I'm going to keep us moving along here. We've got our next speaker, David. David, a condo crunch wouldn't be, or sorry, a, yeah, a condo crunch, because even though it's a Q&A with DHA, it's still a condo crunch. Uh, Q&A with DHA would not be a DHA Q&A without smoking. I think every time we talk about questions, we get smoking questions. So turn it over to you on the continuing hot topic of smoking. Yes, indeed, Nance. So I'll just start right away. My first question is as follows. If a neighbor is smoking marijuana outside and this does not violate the condo bylaws, but interferes with others' enjoyment of the property, what options does the board have for action? So I think this is a really good question because it touches on the issue of condominium compliance on a variety of levels. Uh, as I think many people know, many of the rules and obligations that, that a condominium owner or a resident has to follow come from your condominium's governing documents. It is also very common to see provisions in those documents that talk about a prohibition on cigarette or marijuana smoking. And Many In many of these occasions, these provisions were included to specifically prevent a situation that's described in the question, being that the resulting smoke or odor from the smoking is um, preventing others from being able to enjoy the property. Um, one element to keep in mind, though, is that in these types of situations, the provisions of the Condominium Act also apply. So Section 119 sub 1 of the Act says, that everyone, so unit owners and occupants, must comply with the Condo Act and the Condominium Corporation's governing documents. And then, so if we look uh, further into the Condominium Act, we have Section 117, which talks about certain prohibited conditions and activities. And under that section, it talks about a prohibition for any person to create or allow to continue an activity at a unit or a common element that causes any unreasonable noise that is a nuisance and any other prescribed nuisance, annoyance, or disruption to an individual at a unit or the common elements. So what are some prescribed nuisances? 
they're outlined in the general regulations and they are currently odor, smoke, vapor, light, and vibration. So what this means is that if your condominium is dealing with a smoking act activity in a unit or on the condom elements that is causing a nuisance in any of these categories, uh, also don't forget noise because that's mentioned in the act itself, then that activity would be in contravention of the Condominium Act. So when you're dealing with breaches to the act, condo corporations have a legal duty to take all reasonable steps to ensure that everyone complies. If condo corporations don't take reasonable steps uh, in the face of non-compliant action, it could find itself being subject to the legal action of others. So if you're a condominium corporation dealing with a smoking issue that is causing nuisance to others because of either smoke or odor, but your condominium corporation doesn't have a smoking prohibition in discovery documents, uh, don't worry. The provisions of the Condominium Act can help fill in the gaps for this specific situation and allow the condo corporation to take enforcement action if necessary. And as a summary, enforcement action can uh, include uh, a compliance letter or going to the condominium authority tribunal to seek compliance. Um, I also want to mention that even if your condo corporation doesn't have specific smoking prohibitions in its governing documents, it may still have some sort of general prohibition against nuisance overall. And we've seen some new developments from the CAT jurisprudence in which such provisions against nuisance were being enforced. So this is another possible avenue that may be applicable in certain situations involving smoking. Um, and finally, I want to mention that if your condominium corporation is dealing with such smoking issues on an ongoing basis, it may make sense to consider passing a rule to address such matters. Okay, so my next question is kind of very, it's kind of related uh, to my first question. And so I'm just gonna read it here. I have been awarded a sum of money from my neighbor for his constant smoking of marijuana and had to buy an air cleaner. This was six months ago from the condo authority tribunal. He hasn't acknowledged nor paid. Is this enforceable and by whom? So generally speaking, when you're going through the CAT proceeding and you obtain a CAT order, it can include the following elements. One, an order or certain orders requiring compliance or certain actions to be taken. And two, an order for costs, damages, or in certain circumstances, penalties to be paid. Um, there can be other types of orders that the CAT can make, but generally speaking, these are the two main categories. So when you obtain an order from the CAT, what are the next steps? Uh, well, firstly, I want to mention that CAT decisions and orders are legally binding, and the parties involved must follow them. Enforcing the order, however, requires additional steps, and the tribunal will be the entity to help you enforce your order. One of the first enforcement steps that one can take is to write to the other party, either an email or, or a letter, attach the CAT decision, and indicate that the order from the CAT needs to be carried out. Sometimes writing to the other party is all you need in order to get the ball rolling and obtain compliance. But if the non-compliance to the CAT order continues, then there might be time to consider taking enforcement action, and that is done via the courts. A CAT order can be enforced at either the Small Claims Court or the Superior Court of Justice, and the choice of venue will largely depend on the type of order needing to be enforced. The actual procedure to enforce a CAT order via the courts can be very tricky and technical. And there must also be considerations being made regarding the choice of venue and the specific approach in taking enforcement steps, depending on the peculiar circumstances and depending on the specific remedies that, that are being sought. If a wrong step is being taken, it could result in unnecessary delays in enforcing the order. So I would suggest that prior to taking, if, ta uh, taking commencement of the enforcement process, that uh, one seeks the assistance of legal counsel so that they may have a better understanding and get assistance in taking the technical steps necessary to enforce an order. 
And with that, Nancy, I think that is my time and I'll bring it back to you. Fantastic. Thank you, David. It's definitely a tricky issue once you end up with what you think is a resolution and you haven't had a chance to uh, see that resolution come to fruition. So great advice for that. All right. Our next question is a really great question. I don't want to give it away, Jess, uh, but it definitely is something we get asked often in election time. So Jess, over to you. Good afternoon. So today I'm going to be discussing a question that deals with directors and voting. It's pretty short and sweet, so we're going to just dive right in. And specifically, the question that we received is whether a condominium corporation can pass a bylaw allowing voting against a candidate for director, even if no one is running against them. And the short answer is you don't need a bylaw. Instead, in every case when doing an election for new directors at an owner's meeting, you either need to have a vote of the owners or put forward a motion at the meeting to acclaim an individual to serve on the board for a particular term. In both of those situations, owners would be able to note their disapproval of a particular candidate by either not voting for that candidate on their ballot or voting no on the motion to acclaim. Sometimes in situations where we have candidates running unopposed and we have the same number um, the same number of candidates or less than the spots open for uh, election at the meeting, condo corporations want to automatically have these individuals be part of the board, um, which obviously easier, but uh, that is skipping an important and necessary step of the process. One way or the other, these candidates need to be placed on the board by the ownership during the meeting. The Condo Act is clear that at a meeting of owners, the owners have authority to elect the board. And that's going to happen in one of two ways at your meeting. Uh, the first is that you can hold uh, you know, your standard election where owners vote for their preferred candidate or candidates using a ballot. Or second, if there are an equal number of candidates to available positions on the board, or there are a smaller number of candidates than available positions, you can forego the election and do motions to acclaim. Since owners need to elect directors to particular term lengths, if there are different terms available at the meeting, so for example, you have one position for a one-year term and one position for a two-year term, the candidates will need to agree in advance of the motions who would be acclaimed to which terms. So in other words, who wishes to take the longer term and who wishes to take the shorter term. If all the term lengths are the same, it's pretty easy. All the term lengths are the same for your motions. You're then going to ask for a separate motion to acclaim each candidate to the board for that particular term. So, for example, I would ask for a motion to acclaim Nancy Houle to the board of directors for a two-year term. If that motion was made and seconded, the question can then be put to the owners, and those owners can either vote for or against the proposed motion to acclaim or could abstain from voting. When you're having a formal vote with ballots or doing motions to acclaim, you'll want to make sure that prior to holding such a vote or entertaining the motion, that you're giving candidates an opportunity to address the owners and give them a few minutes to introduce themselves and explain why they're running for the board. You're also going to want to make sure that you address the mandatory candidate disclosure. For candidates who have included their candidate disclosure forms with the meeting package, you can ask them whether there are any changes. And for candidates who may not have had a form included with the meeting package, you can take that opportunity at the meeting to go through that mandatory candidate disclosure. A reminder that you're always going to also want to ask for nominations from the floor before any election or motion to acclaim to ensure that everyone present has an opportunity to put their name forward. And in some cases, that will mean that you're going to get a new candidate or two at the meeting itself, which is always wonderful. So that's all for me today, Nancy. I'll give it back to you. Fabulous. Thank you, Jessica. And it seems like it wouldn't be an issue, right? It seems like, oh, well, of course, if there's one position, one candidate, why not? We'll get them elected. But we have had, well, I've specifically had uh, over my years of practice, two situations where there was a single candidate and a single position. And when the motion to acclaim was brought forward, in one case, there was no seconder. The motion still proceeded, of course, because you don't need a seconder necessarily for a motion to acclaim. Uh, but the vote was against the candidate. So in that particular situation, there was no support for the candidate. In the other situation, we had a mover and a seconder uh, because again, they wanted to see about whether or not a seconder came forward. But again, the individual was not acclaimed to the board of directors because the vast majority of owners were not in support of the candidate. So it is important to still make sure that even if you have one position, 
one candidate that you do an election, uh, even if it's by way of a motion to a claim. All right, next, we're going to move over to Emily. Emily has a really interesting question on what you, what, if anything, you're allowed to not do as a condo when it comes to your obligations. So Emily, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Nancy. That's right. So the question I will be addressing today is sort of a two-part question, and it's respecting annual or recurring statutory obligations that all condominium corporations in Ontario must fulfill, and whether certain condominiums, for instance, smaller-sized condominium communities, might be exempt from certain legal obligations that condos typically have. So the complete list of obligations that condominium corporations must fulfill each year is, of course, too long to discuss in its entirety for today's purposes. So what I'll be doing is just touching on a couple requirements that we often get questions about and then touching on the exceptions. But spoiler alert here, there really aren't that many exceptions. Many of the obligations I'm discussing today will likely be familiar to our attendees. Uh, the first on my list is an obvious one, AGMs. This is an obligation that all condominium corporations should be aware of. All condos are required to call and hold an annual general meeting once per fiscal year within six months of the end of the previous fiscal year. Condominiums are also required to appoint an auditor during their AGMs, and this is another statutory obligation that must be fulfilled each fiscal year. Relatedly, condominium corporation, corporations must also prepare financial statements each fiscal year, which are to be approved by the board of directors. Moving on to information certificates. Condominiums are required to send out information certificates at various points throughout the year. This includes periodic, periodic information certificates, PICs, which are sent out twice per fiscal year and include key information respecting the condo's directors, its finances, insurance, reserve fund, and legal proceedings. Information certificate updates, ICUs, which are sent where key changes occur before the next scheduled pick, and new information, new owner information certificates, which are sent to new owners and covers the most recent pick and any subsequent ICUs. Beyond the statutory requirements respecting information certificates, there may also be requirements in a particular condo's bylaws, which could increase the frequency of information certificates for that particular condo. Another obligation uh, that I want to touch on is filing annual returns with the Condominium Authority of Ontario. This involves providing the CAO with key information about your condo corporation, such as the date of its re registration, address for service, and information about the current board of directors. All annual filings must be completed before March 31st of each calendar year, and failing to fulfill this obligation could impact the corporation's ability to maintain a proceeding before the condominium authority tribunal. So this could be problematic problematic where the condo is dealing uh, with certain compliance issues. The next is reserve fund studies. Condominiums are required to regularly update their RFS to ensure that the corporation has adequate funds saved to repair and or replace common elements when necessary. And as many attendees will know, condos are required to update their reserve fund studies within three years of the previous study being completed or updated. And Christy will be going into more details regarding the reserve fund studies later on in the webinar. The last two obligations that I wanted to discuss today may not be as familiar to some attendees as they are relatively new. So the first is the vacant unit tax declaration. In 2022, the City of Ottawa approved the residential vacant, tax, vacant unit tax. The tax is implemented in an effort to encourage owners to maintain, occupy, or rent their properties and increase housing supply. Based on our firm's review of the city's information on the VUT and dialogue with the city, a condo may have a unit that is subject to this tax if it is classified as a residential taxable unit. So this could be a superintendent's unit, for example, or a guest unit. The condo board is responsible for making the declaration respecting any vacant units owned by the corporation under the terms of the city's bylaw. A vacant unit is defined under the bylaw as being unoccupied for an aggregate of more than 184 days during the previous year. Declarations can be submitted beginning in January and must be completed by the interim tax due date each year. The deadline for this year was March 16th, although late declarations were accepted until April 30th. A failure to make this declaration will result in a residential taxable unit being deemed vacant and tax will be applied. 
In future years, uh, a $250 fee will also be applied. The second is the underused housing tax, which also took effect in 2022. It's mainly geared towards non-residents of Canada or non-Canadian owners. However, in some cases, there may be situations where condominiums could be impacted by this particular tax. The tax similarly applies to guest units or superintendent units owned by the condominium corporation. There is currently some ongoing dialogue between industry stakeholders and the government about this particular tax and the possibility of exemptions for condo corporations. However, until any changes are made, condominium corporations with residential taxable units should review whether a filing, whether filing a return for this tax is required. The deadline for filing is April 30th of each year, and this year there are no penalties that will be applied if the filing is completed by October 31st. Um, there's more information on these taxes, as well as many other condominium topics on our blog, Condo Law News. So now moving on to the very few excep exceptions to the obligations that all condos in Ontario are required to fulfill. As I said, there aren't very many, only two. So the first is respecting the appointment of an auditor at the AGM. Under Section 60, Subsection 5 of the Condominium Act, Condominiums with fewer than 25 units may, on the written consent of 100% of owners, waive the appointment of the auditor at the AGM until the next AGM. Again, all owners must agree in writing to waive this requirement by the AGM date where an auditor would otherwise be appointed. It's important to note, however, that even if the auditor is waived, condominiums still have to prepare financial statements. It's just that they need not be audited. The second exemption is respecting information certificates. Under Section 11.4 of the regulations under the Condominium Act, condominiums are not required to send information certificates, so PICs, ICUs, or new owner certificates, if owners of 80% of the units give written consent to dispense with information certificates for the remainder of the fiscal year. So in a nutshell, most condominiums will need to fulfill the annual and recurring statutory obligations that apply to all condominiums in Ontario. And there are really very few instances where exemptions are available. Thanks, Nancy. That's all for me. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Emily. And uh, I think, folks, we're going to keep you right till one, maybe even a couple of minutes after. We have a lot to say on our questions today. Uh, Victoria, we're going to turn it over to you. A very common question with respect to uh, door handles, window handles, et cetera, et cetera. Over to you, Vic. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, so as Nancy said, I'll be talking about repair and maintenance responsibilities today. So the uh, first question that I have is, is the condominium responsible for minor repairs such as screen replacements for windows and weather stripping for doors? So the answer to uh, this question really comes down to the repair and maintenance obligations of the condominium corporation and its unit owners, which are dictated by the Condominium Act and each condominium's uh, governing documents. So as a first step to determine these maintenance and repair responsibilities, you need to review the Condominium Act and your declaration. The Condominium Act confirms that the Condominium Corporation is responsible for repairing the common elements and the standard units and for maintaining the common elements. On the other hand, the owners are responsible for maintaining the units. Now, the Condominium Act confirms that the condominium's declaration can alter these repair and maintenance obligations that are set out under the Condominium Act. And so it's important for you to review your declaration to confirm whether or not these maintenance and repair obligations have been altered which they typically are. Uh, the next step um, is to review your declaration and description to confirm what are the unit's boundaries, um, as this will tell you what needs to be maintained and repaired by whom. For instance, if the owner is responsible for repairing the unit, you'll of course want to be You'll, you'll of course want to know what the unit boundaries are so you uh, know exactly what you're required to repair. Um, I note that if the condominium corporation is responsible for repairing the standard unit, um, you will also want to review any standard unit bylaw you have to confirm what forms part of the standard unit. Anything not forming part of the standard unit is considered to be an improvement, and the unit owner is responsible for uh, repairing those improvements, even in cases where the declaration says that the condominium corporation is responsible for repairing the units. Uh, so the bottom line is that your governing documents 
and the Condominium Act will dictate who is responsible for repairing and maintaining the common elements and units. Um, so this means that the uh, maintenance and repair obligations of the condominium corporation and of the unit owners is going to vary from condominium to condominium. Now, turning to the specific uh, question of whether the condominium corporation is responsible for uh, minor repairs such as screen replacements or weather stripping for doors, again, this will depend on what is stated in your governing documents. Um, in most cases where the condominium corporation is responsible for repair and maintenance or maintaining the common elements, uh, this will mean that the condominium corporation is also responsible to replace the screens and window hardware at the end of the window's normal life uh, when the whole window is replaced. However, early damage to window hardware or to screens can often be treated as uh, owner responsibility based upon the principle that uh, early damage uh, before required window replacement would be presumed to be the result of improper use rather than uh, normal maintenance or repair. So even in cases where the corporation is generally responsible for repair and maintenance of um, the windows, early damage to hardware screens might still be treated as owner responsibilities. Um, these are tricky issues um, uh, that require consideration, and I think it often makes sense to have a bylaw or rule that spells out these responsibilities uh, relating to early damage to screens or window hardware. So that was my first question. My second question is, if repairs need to be uh, made to a unit, what is the timeline for the condominium corporation to do the repair? So the Condominium Act does not set out a specific timeline um, for the condominium corporation to complete repairs to a unit. That is assuming the condominium corporation is responsible for repairs to the unit. However, Section uh, 117.3 of the Condominium Act confirms that condominium corporations are required to take reasonable steps to fulfill their obligations under the Condominium Act declaration bylaws and rules, which of course outline the condominium's uh, repair and maintenance responsibilities. Um, so what is reasonable? Um, what, uh, in the specific circumstances will vary based on what the facts are, but in general, the condominium corporation is required to complete the required repairs with reasonable haste. Uh, my next question is, if the condominium corporation is required to complete the repairs and it does not have the funds in the reserve fund, what are its options? So for the purposes of this question, I'm going to assume that the condominium corporation does not have the funds in its operating count as well. Um, so in this situation, if the condominium corporation is required to do the repairs, but does not have the funds to do so, um, its options to raise uh, the uh, funds are to increase the common expenses, levy a special assessment, uh, and or obtain a loan. Uh, a quick note on obtaining a loan, if the condominium corporation chooses to do so, it's required to pass a bylaw. Um, another potential option is to speak to the owners uh, or the condominium corporation's consultant, um, such as an engineer, on whether the required repairs um, can be delayed for a period of time, or at least until the condominium corporation is able to raise the appropriate funds. Um, however, if this isn't a possibility and the repair work is required to proceed, then the condominium corporation must raise the funds uh, by one of the options uh, that I've outlined. As a final note, um, don't forget to think about any potential coverage that might be available by way of the condominium's insurance. Um, some types of damage may be covered that you don't think um, are covered by the condominium's insurance policy, and so it's important to turn your minds to that. So again, insurance uh, is, uh, is one other possibility that might be worth considering. All right, that's it. Over to you, Nance. Fantastic. Thanks, Vic. And I think one of the most important points Vic did make as well is make sure that the corporation has the duty to repair the unit first before you go using condo funds. Make sure that it actually has the duty to repair the unit. It may or may not. Depends on a multitude of circumstances. All right. Our last speaker, Christy, reserve funds. That's all I'm going to say. Over to you. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to try to be quick because uh, we're supposed to be wrapping up right now. So uh, the first question I had is, what is a board's legal liability for following the reserve fund plan? Um, generally speaking, the board has an obligation to contribute to the reserve fund in accordance with the plan. So that's the primary responsibility. The contributions should be 
uh, matching, the annual contribution should be matching what is called for in the plan. The corporation also has an obligation to maintain the reserve fund um, at the balance that's shown in the plan on an annual basis. So if for any reason that balance goes down lower than what's called for in the plan, whether it's because contributions are not being made where they should be made or because there were unanticipated expenditures, um, there are certain additional obligations that are triggered, including putting wording in your status certificate to alert purchasers to the fact that your reserve fund um, is off track. Uh, and then you also need to consider how you're going to get it back on track. So it has to get back on track within um, one fiscal year uh, from the end of the fiscal year in which it goes off track, which is <laughs> awkward wording. I'm using the wording from the act, but uh, more or less within two years time, you have to get the reserve fund back on track. Um, and this can be done by increasing contributions, either by way of special assessment or increased common expenses until it's back on track or getting a revised um, reserve fund study done uh, to see if some expenses can be moved around uh, and adju any adjustments can be made to sort of soften the blow to the, the owners in terms of additional contributions that need to be made up. But the bottom line is that when your reserve fund is off track, when you don't have the balance in the reserve fund that's ca called for in your reserve fund plan, there's an obligation to get it back on track. In terms of the expenditures, the corporation doesn't have an obligation necessarily to um, spend the money in accordance with what's called for in the reserve fund plan. Uh, the expenditures can be adjusted. That said, um, it's always a good idea to follow the advice of your engineer if you're going to put off expenditures um, or if you're going to consider early expenditures. So in other words, if you're going to be spending money um, in a way that's different from what your reserve fund plan calls for, it's a good idea to get advice from your engineer. Um, Obviously, for early expenses, owners are going to want to know why you're incurring costs unnecessarily. Obviously, it would be necessarily, but in their minds, it might be unnecessarily. Um, and then also, if you're putting off expenditures, you, you just want to ensure that whatever the component is, it can handle that additional time before it requires work. Second question that I had was, can you go into some detail on the differences between operating expenses and reserve fund expenses? Uh, so this is really determined by Section 93 of the Condominium Act, which um, specifies that a reserve fund shall be used solely for the purpose of major repair and replacement of the common elements and assets of the corporation. So the expenses, anything being um, anything for which the reserve fund is being used has to fall into that category of major repair and replacement of the common elements and assets. Generally speaking, whatever the expenses are that are contemplated in your reserve fund plan are going to be proper reserve fund expenditures. So if it's an expenditure that falls within the contemplated expenditures in that plan, then you can be assured that for the most part, uh, subject to any questions you may have for your reserve fund analyst, but generally speaking, the reserve fund analyst is only gonna put in expenses um, that are proper reserve fund expenses. Expenses, uh, so just to sort of summarize um, what that means, expenses that are intended to replace the component or are intended to extend its life are typically going to be proper reserve fund expenses, whereas expenses that are more um, just designed to um, maintain uh, our maintenance costs are more in line with operating costs. Um, so anything that repeats annually is going to be typically an annual maintenance cost, which is an operating cost. Um, because this question asks for specific examples, I, um, I will just provide a few quick ones. Uh, roads and curbs, touching up potholes and minor repairs to curbs would be part of the operating cost um, because these are things that have to be done annually and they really don't have any impact on the, the long-term lifespan of these components. Whereas asphalt and curb replacement or uh, major rehabilitative work that effectively extends the life of these components, those would be reserve fund expenditures. Similarly with roofs, if you're just doing minor roof repairs, um, shingle replacements, that kind of thing, those are operating costs. Whereas the replacement of the roofs or any work that effectively extends the life of um, the component, uh, that work is going to be a reserve fund expenditure. With respect to elevators, um, the annual elevated maintenance contract is an operating expense, whereas the replacement of elevating equipment is a reserve fund expense. I also wanted to note that any expenses related to units um, 
Currently, those are not proper reserve fund expenditures. So if there's expenses related to units for which the corporation has an obligation, um, then uh, those expenses have to come from the operating uh, account. They can't come from the reserve fund account at the present time, although the wording of the act may be changing in that respect. Last question I had was, if you have regular reserve fund studies done with no significant increases for 12 years, then you receive a study with very high multi-year special assessments, what recourse do you have insofar as none of the costs were mentioned in the previous nine years of studies? The short answer to this, and whoever asked this question is not going to like my answer, but it really depends on the reason for the increase. Sometimes increases happen due to changes in costs of materials or costs within the industry. So coming out of COVID was a good example of that. A lot of people experienced increased uh, contributions to the reserve fund to um, offset the increased anticipated costs due to just generally higher construction costs. Sometimes this happens um, due to the 30-year time frame of, of a reserve fund study. So currently the legislation requires a reserve fund study to project expenses over a 30-year period from the date of the study. If you have replacement of components that do not fall within that 30 years, so maybe fall in year 31 or 32, they're not being planned for. In if your study only covers that 30 years, they're not contemplated. So when you get to your next reserve fund study, suddenly that component is now within uh, the window of projection that your reserve fund study is covering. And that means increased additional costs. For some components, it won't matter. For some components, these would be a lot of these expenses that are don't require replacement for more than 30 years are larger ticket items, unfortunately. So an example of this would be if you have a building that has a window wall system, the window wall system may not require replacement for 40 plus years. When that window wall, so that window wall system may not be on your reserve fund study for multiple reserve fund study cycles. When it finally starts to show up, because now you're into your 45, let's say of that, or year 40 um, of the uh, the life of the component, um, if it once that component comes online in terms of the projection of your reserve fund study, that's a major expense that you didn't previously have to plan for that now you have to plan for, and so it will have a significant impact on um, the reserve the required reserve fund contributions. So if that's what's going on in with your reserve fund studies, there's actually nothing wrong with that from a legislative perspective or a legal perspective. It's definitely an unfortunate practical situation and can be avoided if you consider having your reserve fund study span more than 30 years. This is something that the government is currently reviewing. It may be that some coming amendments to the Condominium Act may require condominiums to have reserve fund studies that span more than 30 years, so maybe 40 years. Um, but right now it's 30 years. So you can extend that as a as a board. You can decide to have a projection that covers 40 years if you wish. It's a very cautious approach um, and it's, it's not necessary, but it is an option for you. And then you will avoid those surprise large ticket items coming online on your reserve fund planning, you know, in, in a couple of years time. If ultimately what you're dealing with is a situation where your engineer just missed components that they should have caught, uh, it's possible there, there was negligence there. And anytime there's negligence, there's potential claim, uh, there, there's a potential claim available. But what you have to consider is that in terms of what you're entitled to recover when you're dealing with negligence, you're entitled to recover the costs that you would have avoided if the negligence had not occurred. So if you're if your reserve fund analyst three years ago forgot to include, um, for example, replacement of roofs, and let's say it's a $50,000 um, uh, item. So that 50,000 was not included on your last study, but now it's included. You the, the, the negligence by the engineer would not have, if they had not been negligent, I guess I should say, you, you would still have been responsible for that $50,000. So you wouldn't have been able to avoid that $50,000 if they had not been negligent. You would still have been responsible for it. It's just that the financial planning for it would have been better. You would have avoided um, possibly a special assessment. So the cost of that item coming online would not be damages that you could recover through a legal claim. What you could potentially recover are uh, costs of borrowing, for example. So if you have to borrow because you're now facing a special assessment versus um, 
uh, or, or if the corporation itself decides to borrow to fund um, a, a cost to offset these, these sharp increases, that's something that potentially could have been avoided if the engineer or the analyst had not been negligent in the previous studies. So if if the um, if there had been proper financial planning over the course of a number of years versus a sudden sharp increase in common uh, reserve fund contributions um, due to the poor planning, then those costs of borrowing are potential damages. But um, but otherwise, uh, it, it there. It really um, isn't something that we see very frequently. And ultimately, I, I'm going to have to say the standard lawyer uh, thing, which is you're going to want to get advice from your lawyer because it really depends on the particulars of your situation. That's it for me. Thank you, everyone. And Thanks. I'm sorry that we kept you late. <laughs> Awesome, Christy. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to do a couple of items of wrap up here. You're going to see I've posted in the chat our most recent podcast link. If you missed our May 25th podcast or uh, condo crunch, it was a really a fantastic one about understanding the risks of volunteers and uninsured workers. Really great topic. So there's your podcast link. You can listen to it in the car, stuck in traffic, uh, whatever the case may be. It's a great topic. And now school is out for summer. So that means DHA is out for summer. Our condo crunches are out for summer. So we're going to see everybody back in the fall. Stay tuned for our September date. And we'll figure out what the hot topic is at that time for our September condo crunch. In the meantime, we are wishing everybody a fantastic summer. Lots of sun. Hopefully lots of outdoor time and some great vacationing as well. So everyone be safe, be well, and enjoy your summer. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsoncondolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.